Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast. Uh, In each episode, uh, if you're new to this, um, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with the aim of promoting a clearer understanding, at least hopefully, of its contested history. Perhaps busting a few myths on the way, um, introducing some new ways of thinking and very importantly, making connections between Labour's history, uh, its present and its future. My name's Stephen Fielding. I'm uh, Emeritus Professor of Political History at the University of Nottingham. And my co-host is Laura Beers, who's Professor of History at the American University uh, in Washington. So first off, hello, Laura. Hey, Steve. Nice to see you. As always. As always, as always. Um, Now today, in this episode, we want to ask what Keir Starmer um, can learn from Tony Blair. Um, It's it's certainly something that's been flying around, a question um, and accusations have been flying around in recent weeks and months um, about the relationship between Keir Starmer and, and Tony Blair. Uh, But even before Starmer uh, was leader during the the campaign uh, to become Labour leader, he was accused by, um, well, quite a few people on the hard left. But I remember Ian Lavery in particular saying that don't vote for Keir Starmer. He's just a Blairite Trojan horse. Um, And now, um, more recently, um, Sharon Graham, um, the General Secretary of Unite, um, has accused him of leading a 90s tribute band so kind of making the similar kind of point but but on the other hand um rachel reeves at a recent financial times event um reported in the financial times said that the party did have as she put it lessons to learn from that period now now the report that i read in the financial times didn't actually say what those lessons were but we're very fortunate to have as our guest uh, John McTurnan, who was actually on the platform as she spoke. Um, so that's one reason why uh, John's been invited. But another and much more important reason is that John's experience um, within the Labour Party, both in Britain and, and Australia, is, is extensive. And 
and he actually acted as Tony Blair's um, political secretary between 2005 and 2007. I won't go on to list all the other people that John has advised, um, from Harriet Harman um, to Julia Gillard when she was Australian Prime Minister, and I won't even mention that he was thinker in residence to, I think, the South Australian Labour Party. Um, but I will mention that he is a senior advisor for BCW. So after all of that, hello, John. Hello. Great to be here on the podcast. I think the first thing, um, just to clear up, because this whole thing about Starmer and Blair, a lot of it is in very bad faith. A lot of it is done basically to accuse Starmer of all kinds of, of evils. And and obviously it's based, a lot of it, on, on, the, on the perception of those making the comparison that Tony Blair was terrible and awful as well. But but there is a lot of sort of thing flying around. Um, but the first thing is, is Starmer, do you think, in any sense, John, um, a Blairite? Um, no. It's a simple and straightforward answer. Um, there's two reasons. Um, there's a context, which is the Labour Party, like the Labour movement, is deeply sentimental and loves to celebrate defeat. We hate making heroes out of people who actually win anything. So Tony Blair's greatest betrayal of the Labour Party started on May the 1st, 1997, when he won the election. And it's an absolute item of faith amongst some people on the left that only Tories can win elections. Therefore, when Tony won the election, it proved he was a Tory. And I think, you know, for, for all Labour leaders, the first betrayal is winning. Um, and the fact that Keir is winning uh, at the moment in the, in the opinion polls, being in the lead in the last 700 in a row, um, and has done it in, uh, in, in, the, in probably the worst circumstance any leader has recovered. As Tony Blair said to, um, to Keir Starmer at the, at the TBI, Tony Blair Institute uh, annual conference, he said he'd had the ground prepared for him by John Smith and Neil Kinnock. And he said, look to Keir, and he said, and you had, and that's the, the Keir has had to, to do what Neil Kinnock, um, John Smith, and Tony Blair did in three electoral cycles, and Keir did it in two years, which is extraordinary. Um, but the reason I say that Keir's not a Blairite is that, in my view, Tony wouldn't be a Blairite today. New Labour's politics, like the politics of the third way of, of the New Democrats, were the politics for that moment. And it was very, very important for New Labour and the New Democrats in the third way to say, where is the world today? How do we apply our values to the world as it is today? What are the solutions for the problems today that reflect our, our values, the movement's values? How do we go about it? Not as many social democratic parties do, um, which is say, how can we apply the solutions of the 70s to the 21st century? Nobody in the 70s said, how are we applying the solution in the 70s? You know, the Labour Party in Australia in the 1980s came up with its solutions for the 80s, didn't go back to what Gough Whitlam had done. And I think that's really important to understand your history but not be trapped by it. And that's one of Keir's things. He respects Blair, because Blair won. He respects Blair, because Blair has stayed a relevant political figure, a relevant political leader, and he respects Blair because I think because Blair doesn't, through him or to him or through his institute, seek to relitigate the 1990s or the early 2000s. 
the Tony Blair Institute produce policy solutions for today's problems with today's with, with some of today's answers for progressive parties. And so Keir, for me, is a he's a soft left John Smith. Uh, he is a figure from the soft left, wholly of the soft left in formation, wholly of the soft left in his personal politics, and he leads the party from the soft left. But unlike Neil Kinnock, uh, but like John Smith, he has a reassuring feeling about him on, you know, where John Smith felt like a bank manager, uh, but was a solicitor. Keir Starmer, you know, he's got that kind of feeling of this. He's a KC. He's a silk. He's a he's a senior lawyer. And it's the reassuring air he has, which is combined with his politics. That, that's kind of my take on Keir. Well, I'd be curious to ask John his views. I mean, Steve, you led off by saying, you know, the left have accused um, Starmer of being a Blairite. And John, your response is, well, that's they don't like a winner. And Blair was a winner. But I think what is notable here is that the right have not accused Starmer of being a Blairite, right? And do you think, or not the right, but um, the conservative, the opposition have not, right? They consistently, um, Sunak consistently accuses Starmer of being a red, right? And is trying to tar him with the brush of being, you know, a socialist and, you know, a hard left socialist in disguise, but they don't mention Blair, and you know Blair has gone through a period of um, of unpopularity, but Sunak seems concerned, and I wonder if you'd agree that to compare Starmer to Blair would be to tar tar him with the brush of competence or char him with the brush of being a winner, perhaps you know something they don't want to do. And so it's the left, not the right, who are making these comparisons. It seems to me. Would you agree? I think that's a fair observation. I would just jump in if I could just jump in because I think I think when the I, think, I mean first of all I would agree with you Laura on that but but when when those on the left because you know Sharon Graham um, Ian Lavery and everybody else obviously on the left um, when when they draw that comparison what they're essentially saying is that in their eyes just like Tony Blair was all about power and he would sacrifice Labour principle Labour values to achieve that and then when in office you know, not be very interested in it. So that's why they're drawing the comparison because they're saying that's what Keir Starmer's doing. That's essentially their view, whether it's right or wrong, but that's how they see Blair. So that's how they see so how they see Starmer. So I don't know if that's a fair sort of reflection of the left view, whether it's a fair reflection of Tony Blair or not, that's another matter. So I think Laura has identified a real issue about the conservative critique of Keir. And I think it's a similar one to the problem that um, John Major and his team had with Tony Blair. They never decided, was he new Labour, new danger, or was he Bambi? So you've you've got to decide whether your opponent is a threat or a softie. And because the Tories tried to say he was new Labour, new danger, the same, if you make an incorrect attack the first time and fail to define your opponent... What happens is the public dismiss it because it doesn't work. It doesn't fit, fill out their view of the person. And they stop listening to you from then on. And I think the problem that the uh, Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak have is it's manifestly clear Keir's not a socialist. Um, he's a centre-left progressive politician from, from, a, from a kind of mainstream social democratic uh, tradition, more social democratic than Tony, Um but not, but not a kind of state socialist. And the, the, the dissonance, I think, is the public hear this and they kind of go, what? And if the public go, don't 
believe in your critique, they stop listening to your to what you're carrying on saying. And I think that there is a there's a strange thing going on in British politics, which is the most popular thing that Rishi Sunak has ever done and probably will ever do in politics was furlough when he paid during COVID, during the lockdown, he paid wages, supported businesses and actually made sure the country got through. And I think because he is a genuine Thatcherite, because he doesn't think the state should help out, he does think people should be self-reliant. I think he's embarrassed with the fact that he is the biggest state socialist Britain has seen since the Second World War, the biggest corporatist and socialist. And there's almost like a projection onto Keir. It's like, no, you're scared that people know. that. And I think Sunak would have been a much more popular prime minister had he come into power and said, I know it's not our podcast, but I, I said, the Tory party let you down, but I never have. When I was chancellor, I had your back. Now, trust me, as I steer the country to, to, to a better future, there's many challenges, but you can never doubt that I have always had your back because I did have your back and I'll have your back in the future. But instead, the, 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 politics, are, the, the politics are misframed. And because of that, Keir is, is currently able to define himself. The left haven't managed to define him as a Blairite. The right uh, politics, the Conservatives, haven't managed to define him as a socialist. And in recent weeks, Keir's confidence has been expressed by going to Europe and looking like a prime minister, looking like an alternative prime minister, meeting with President Macron, actually being on, a, on, a, on an international stage in France, international stage in Montreal with, uh, with Pierre Trudeau, with the Norwegian prime minister, just looking like he fits in uh, in, the, in the international world uh, and is a global leader, not just a, a Labour Party leader. I mean, what, one of the things you mentioned, um, John, about the different... I mean, there is a different context and we can maybe talk about that a little bit. Um, but And the, so the different two different contexts have sort of shaped how both leaders sort of... Um, the policies are in favour of and, and all of that and how they present themselves. Um, but one thing... One, one, of the, one of the critiques um, of Starmer, which actually does compare Starmer with Blair in an interesting way, is from... Um, Jeremy Gilbert, the academic Jeremy Gilbert, who's very interesting, but very on the left, very, very keen on Corbyn and, and beyond, to be fair. Um, but he's he's actually compared Starmerism or whatever Keir Starmer stands for very badly with with Blair and the New Labour kind of era, because he said that New Labour had a critique it had a, you know, it had a project. I mean, he doesn't, he didn't like the project, Jeremy, that is, but he had a clear idea, a clear mission for government. And Keir Starmer, by contrast, in this criticism, doesn't. And obviously, that at this point in time, you would expect me to to sort of mention all these surveys that say that not not many people really know what Keir Starmer stands for, right? So, do you think? I mean, is that? Do you think that's 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 a fair kind of comparison? That, or to, to certainly to Starmer's detriment, that it's not clear really what he stands for. That he's been kind of defined by his problems, but not necessarily the solutions. Unlike Blair, I like Jeremy Gilbert a lot, um, and I think of him as I think he thinks of me. Um, great taste in music, terrible politics. Um, but Jeremy is a great analyst um, of. Uh, the Labour Party, um, his 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 podcast where he dives into Labour factions is probably one of the best descriptions of Labour 
factionalism historically and currently. So I think he's a great analyst and observer, um, but he's a he's a he's a terrible prescriber, great describer, terrible prescriber. Um, and he's he's I said that at the beginning of the podcast, the Labour Party Labour movement are great sentimentalists, and there's something that's being done to Tony, which um, Owen Jones had a go at too, and other people on the left, which is. Oh, yeah, Tony was really great because he had some politics. And Tony, I didn't agree with his politics, but he had some ideology, he had some feeling, he had a view of the world. And they, and they, they used the sentimentalization of that project, the, the Blair project, to attack um, Keir Starmer. We've seen it before because the, the left didn't particularly like Clement Attlee, but they have idolized him uh, in, in, in recent decades simply as a way of critiquing the current leadership. And if you, as I said, the labor, the labor movement loves betrayal. And if you can use Tony Blair to prove that actually Keir Starmer is really betraying the true traditions of the movement, it's, it's just a tool for a job. And I think the, the, thing, with, the thing which I would, I would bring into this is, and I've argued this in the Financial Times, all the great Labour governments have had an important element of an engagement with the left of the party. Uh, Attlee had the nationalisations. Wilson was from the left faction um, and had his own nationalisations and had a liberal, a left liberal reforming social agenda. Tony Blair, Blairism, New Labour, was obviously a product of a moment and it was a mo- the moment of third way in the New Democrats. It was the product also of Thatcherism and the product of Marxism today and Stuart Hall's analysis of Thatcherism. There would have been no new labor without this, the Marxism today critique of Thatcherism and response to Thatcherism. And that dynamic in the party, in the movement, I, I think Jeremy gets that historically. He doesn't see the dynamic of the engagement of Keir with the left, um, although the most recent Labour Party reshuffle where Ed Miliband wasn't sacked, um, <laughs> where Angela Reno was promoted. Um, so you've got the, the heart, the heart of the party, uh, the leadership, Angie Rayner, um, Ed Miliband, uh, Keir Starmer, three figures from the soft left. And what is really odd is the inability of the left to take the win. The left want to take a defeat. They want to say Keir's the defeat of the left when he isn't. Um, I wonder whether in terms of engaging with the left, I mean, one thing that most people I think would agree the current labor opposition is more concerned about than um, than it, particularly the early Blair administrations right, is the problem of inequality. And that is a concern that has been absorbed from a vocal and articulate left critique of the way that inequality in and of itself is a is a social problem for Britain and globally. Right. Um, but the ability of, of Starmer to say what he's going to do about it is is limited in a way that, you know, um, Blair as a government in waiting was not limited by the fact that the economy is in a truly catastrophic state. Right. So he's sort of very wary of making promises on which he's afraid he won't be able to deliver in a year or so. And I guess to what degree is the sense that we don't really know what Starmer stands for? A consequence of, you know, I mean, he has ideas. Those ideas are not, you know, Blair Mark II. They are ideas that are reflective of the the current state of politics in the current moment. But he's very constrained by the fact that he's going to 
inherit a disaster show, presumably, in a year's time. People often misremember 94, 95, 96. Um, the big uh, redistribution in terms of welfare tax credits were done after the election. They weren't, they weren't talked about before the election. And the tax credit solution was a solution because it didn't involve increasing spending, it involved negative taxation. And so Gordon Brown's uh, construction was done within the new labor framework of being constrained uh, economically. I think that's an important thing to understand. I worked on the health policy before the election. Our promise to tackle waiting lists, which were at least as long as the current waiting list in the UK, so over 7 million, 8 million, our promise was to cut 100,000 people off the waiting list. It was not a major, none of the, none of the promises were particularly major in, when you look back at them. There was definitely economic growth. There was definitely optimism. There was not a polycrisis. It felt like things were all bad under the John Major government, but they really weren't because of that long economic boom that Labour was coming into and then, and then, and then rode. I think I would say one thing about Blair versus uh, Starmer, Keir Starmer, does not narrate his politics. He doesn't get his office to brief uh, court journalists or court commentators um, to say, here's what he's thinking, here's what he's doing, here's why he's doing this. He just speaks and acts. He didn't brief before the reshuffle. He didn't brief after the reshuffle. He just did the reshuffle. And and like he does his, um, he's like a footballer. He does his talking on the pitch. So that's very different, partly because he doesn't come from politics. He comes from a public service career and came late in life. He doesn't act like other politicians, which I think really helps. And I think um, he's an advantage over Rishi Sunak, who actually, since his announcement yesterday, has started talking, uh, his announcement on, um, uh, on, on Wednesday this week, he started talking about, we need to change the way we do our politics. Well, here kind of is the change. If you don't want a political politician Here's exactly the answer. But but the really big thing about this being missed, I think, by it's not missed by young people. It's missed by uh, Greybeard's older, you know, older commentators is here's really direct. He, you know, when he's asked climate crisis is one of is one of his is one of his top two priorities, tackling climate crisis. Um, <clears throat> and to be to be absolutely clear, um, 2025 to 2030, uh, are critical five years in facing up to an existential crisis. And so the animating politics of Keir Starmer are kind of in plain sight, but being a bit neglected, they're being ignored because they're there in plain sight. We have to deal with climate crisis. When we've done that, almost everything else falls into place. And if we don't do that, nothing else really matters. And so the politics uh, of, of Starmerism uh, in, in that sense is a genuine response to the proximate crisis of, 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 of this time. And it's about shaping the future uh, of the, um, shaping the future uh, questions that we're asking in politics. That one of the points you made, John, a little bit ago about, about the left and the win in the reshuffle, I'm not sure Lisa Nandy would be too, too happy with seeing it in those terms. I thought that was, I, I did wonder about that, but that, that's a detail. That's a detail about, about things. Um, and one, I think one of the more interesting critiques of 
of the Blair years um, actually has come from one of Keir Starmer's advisors, um, Peter Hyman, who was himself an advisor and speechwriter and long term for Tony Blair and and resigned um, during the, the second term after 2001. And and actually, uh, he, he wrote a really interesting um, sort of memoir of, of that time and talking about education because he gone on to have a really impressive career um, in, in education. Um, but his his critique from within, from within New Labour, were, and, and the reason why he resigned from, from Number 10 was his frustration with, with Tony Blair, that he expected, you know, the 1997, you know, agenda to go and build on on that and become more social democratic to to actually do a different kind of politics um and it's a very you know I'm, I'm always like like to quote it um as a, as a kind of revealing that within new labor and within tony blair's circle not everybody was you know a blairite as it were so i just wonder if if because in some ways blairism failed i mean it I mean, Tony Blair was effectively chased out of the Labour Party. He was forced to go. He didn't want to go. Um, the 2010 election, although he would say, I suspect, what well, he does, I think, um, in his memoirs, after he left, nothing to do with me, Gov. It all went, you know, wrong. But Labour did lose, and then Labour was, has been out of office since. So in a sense, you could argue that Blairism was a failure within the party. Why Jeremy Corbyn, if Blair had been a success... Why these conservative governments, if Blairism had worked in government? So, is he is he learning the less? It's some of the lessons he's learning. Is it that the Blairism actually didn't succeed? It did for a time, electorally, definitely it did do some positive things. But if Blairism worked, why are we are why are we here now? Well, I'm very curious to hear John's view on this, but I would want to ask the caveat, um, Steve. I mean, can we have this conversation without bringing in the Iraq War? I mean. The counterfactual of but for the Iraq war, would we still be claiming that potentially new labor had failed is um, one you could talk about for more than hours for days, right? So Blairism clearly didn't fail um, because the success of a political project is not being in power forever. In a democracy, you can never be in power forever. The success of a political project is to change the terms of political trade. We faced, in 1997, a homophobic Conservative Party, and we not only repealed Section 28, the homophobic legislation, we brought in civil partnerships and the Tory party to prove to the UK, the country it changed, became in favor of equal marriage. Changing a party socially in that way is quite significant. Secondly, the Labour Party's national minimum wage was fought tooth and nail by the Conservative Party. They kept the House of Commons in those days, you could, up sitting until three and four and five in the morning, trying to trying to defeat or harass a piece of legislation which in, in, in at a moment when there were people working for a pound an hour in 1997. The Conservative Party under Cameron Osborne adopted it and changed it to a, a living wage, so actually conceding to a civil society campaign to increase the, uh, the generosity of the minimum wage. And that has never been reversed. 
if you look at um, if you look at education policy, that was built on uh, the whole. The, the Tories are built on what Andrew Donis did with academies. Um, if you look at health policy, health policy has gone back uh, to what it was uh, under Milburn and Alan Milburn and, and John Reid and Patricia Hewitt. Um, the failure in health policy was when the Tory party tried under Andrew Lansley to take a different route from New Labour. They came back to it and it's the same. Universal credit is a failure in execution, but it's a continuity of um, welfare thinking that stretches back uh, to Keith Joseph bringing in family income supplement. Uh, Norman Fowler legislating for um, family credit. Gordon Brown legislating for tax credits and now universal credit, all based on a bipartisan consensus, but cemented by Labour, that people cannot at work in some situations earn enough money to keep their family decently and out of poverty, keep their children out of poverty. That's a, that is a, that's a consensus since the 1970s. It's bipartisan. And there's a lot of areas in which Labour is a continuity with pre-existing thinking. There's a lot of areas where Tory policy today has been created by the Labour Party. So say Blairism was a, fail Blairism was a reckoning with reality by the progressive left. It was also what historically happens to the UK Labour Party. The UK Labour Party do not win very often. And it is a fantasy of the Labour Party to try and re-litigate history to find a way we could always win. The Labour Party is reached for by a broadly conservative electorate in a broadly conservative country. Post-imperial countries are broadly conservative and post-imperial countries which do not wish to interrogate their history are deeply conservative. Um, that is why the Churchill myth is so powerful. Um, Labour Party is reached to when the country requires reconstruction. That was the 45 moment. That was 64, 66. Uh, that was 1997. That's going to be 2024, 25. So that's a broader context. But Blairism didn't fail. And to, we could have a whole podcast on the Iraq war. The simple fact about the Labour Party is um, the Labour Party wanted the UK uh, to go to war against a fascist dictator in the Argentina period, the Falklands period, and we did. But the but the Labour Party, the British the Labour Party, wanted the British government to go to war against Franco. Um, the odd thing about the Iraq War and is that it's the only war against a fascist dictator that the British left has said we shouldn't really go to war against a fascist dictator. That's the fascist dictator we think should stay in place. But the real thing about Tony is, Tony, like he was always. You get what you see. He was never going to raise taxes. He didn't. Um, he was never going to nationalize industries. He didn't. And he said in the Chicago speech, he, he did believe that there had been a moral failure on behalf of the United Kingdom to stand back when Rwanda, there was genocide in Rwanda, to stand back when there was, gen when there was ethnic cleansing uh, as Yugoslavia fell into civil war. And that he believed that actually he, he believed that there was an alternative to the Treaty of Westphalia. Um, now, it works in some places, it works in other places, but the, the, what does history tell you? Um, maybe you can say boots on the ground in Iraq was not fully successful. You can definitely say that um, 
no boots but bombs in Libya has been an utter failure. It's, it's created a failed state, which is now the base place from where refugees are, are t- taken across uh, the Mediterranean. And you can definitely say that not bombing a dictator who gasses their own people is an utter failure because 10 million people displaced in Syria is not just a tragedy for Syria. Those flows of people across Europe uh, were the cause of Brexit in the United Kingdom. So you can, you can cut history in many, many ways. But if intervention doesn't work, half intervention doesn't work, non-intervention doesn't work, you have to take your choice about what you actually do. Yeah, I don't think, I think Iraq is meant that that's that's not one of the lessons that Stormer is going to follow, um, I don't think. I think that's probably well off the agenda. Um, but I thought it was interesting what you were saying about conser- a conservative country, um, because, um, I mean, obviously people have emphasised, you know, Tony Blair's background. Um, I mean, one thing that really, because I, I, I'm old enough to have actually written about the 97 election um, and, st- and sort of studied it. And as a consequence of that, I was I was reading a lot of the Daily Telegraph during the, the campaign. And obviously they were so, they, they were wildly, they hated him because he was kind of a conservative and yet they didn't, you know, they were so frustrated. And it goes back to the sort of the definitional problem. But but one of the things that that maybe does there is a definite comparison between the two, therefore, is and that maybe is something which is about all Labour leaders to some extent who are successful, that they have to have a conservative, you know, they have to have some kind of a conservative appeal. There has to be some kind of conservatism among within within their radicalism. Um, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was a full-on radical, whatever. There was nothing, apart from his attitude towards Jews, there was nothing really conservative about him um, in many ways. So is that something which, you know, that, that they share? I mean, Starmer, when he first became leader, was obviously famous for always having um, flags behind him and talking about patriotism and, and all of that and they, because of the Red Wall. And and that kind of really did annoy a lot of people on the left. But is that is that something which, you know, it's not so much Blairism, Starmerism. This is something which all successful Labour leaders have to integrate within their appeal or they don't they don't win. So for me, <clears throat> social democrats have two fatal flaws. One is they think people like change as much as they do. Um, and actually change is really hard. And most people have enough change in their own lives, personally, professionally, in their communities, to be getting on with. So extra change forced on you by an external force because it's good for you. It's what I call the um, the eat your greens uh, style of social democracy, which is I know you don't like it, but it's good for you. So forcing change onto people is is a is a is a challenging thing. And the second thing that uh, that progressives, particularly social democrats, tend to do is. They want to find a government-sized solution for every problem. And even if your problem isn't government-sized, they try to inflate it until it's big enough to require a government intervention. And what that takes you down the track of is what I call miserabilism. Um, And it was there uh, under Ed Miliband's leadership. It was there big time uh, under Jeremy Corbyn's. And it's basically that the Labour Party's position is to a voter, vote Labour, and they go, well, why? And they go, we need change. Well, why? Because your life is so shitty. It's like, well, you don't know me. You have no idea how my life is like. 
you don't actually realize the zero hours contract you're attacking allows me flexibility to pick up my kids from school the time I want to and need to. That our projection on the progressive, the progressive uh, center left, our projection onto people that their lives must be miserable to the point that they require government intervention um, is actually incredibly alienating for a lot of voters. And what you have to have, and I think Tony had it, which I think annoyed the Daily Telegraph, was he was very much at ease with how people lived their lives. And what he wants to do was make incremental changes to the country and to accept that you couldn't go back and relitigate the industrial settlement. Something had to happen in the United Kingdom post the OPEC oil crash, post uh, the entry of China into the global economy, um, post the fall of the Berlin Wall. When, it, when over a billion workers enter the global market, um, when, when oil prices move in real terms, quadruple in real terms and never go down again, something fundamental has to change. Thatcher settled it in one way. It was the my viewpoint of view, it was more cruel and harsher than it, could, than it should have been, could have been. You can't go back and change that. What Tony did was he said, we can rebuild the public square. We can rebuild the public sphere. We can actually do things uh, that at, when the Labour Party came to power in 1997, there were schools in England with outside toilets. There aren't anymore. But nobody remembers that, but they are willing uh, to attack the private finance initiative, the PFI funding that took the toilets, outside toilets away. So there's a kind of, the, 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 for, for me, the, the issue is how do you take the country as it is and then move it to the, to the country it could be and then move it to the country it should be, but taking people with you at every stage. We are, um, we're, we're very, very interested. And in, I, I think of politics and Maslowian hierarchy. The base is security. And if you cannot answer national security, you can't answer uh, economic security, you can't answer environmental security, you can't border security, law and order and safety on the street security, you don't get allowed to talk about stuff. And the flag was the emblem of, I get security. Then in the middle of the hierarchy is competence. If I can't believe you can collect my bins, if there's one or seven of them, you can't collect my bins, then um, why would I trust you uh, to reform education or to change welfare? And then there is, if you are, if you, if you can secure the country, secure me, my community, my family, and you can run things competently, then you can talk about the aspirational self-actualization, all the great things about how we are going to be a better country. And Labour only and progressives only want to talk about how great the country will be, what the childcare will be like. And everybody's going, yeah, but will you be able to run it? Will you be able to secure it? So I think sometimes there's a, there's a, there's a, a rush to let's build a rush to describing the new Jerusalem rather than actually constructing it bit by bit. Well, I wanted to go back and link what John has just said about this notion of, you know, social Democrats selling a kind of miserableist um, message almost a sort of your life is shit and therefore you need us and you need the state. And in order to succeed to, you know, to kind of maybe make these changes by stealth, but not, 
that not being the song that you're singing about the future, right? And arguably, that is one of the things that Blair did very well, right? It was the the packaging yeah. of of new labor as something that wasn't wasn't a kind of threatening monster state. And I wanted to go back to when you said earlier in this podcast, well, Starmer's a very different type of communicator. He doesn't brief. He just does things and gets on with it. He's like the football player on the pitch. You know, is that potentially a problem? I mean, in order to kind of create the momentum behind a Starmerite project that grew up around new labor, do you need someone who can kind of narrate the story? Um, not that, you know, a kind of miserableist big state, um, you know, social democratic party is coming in, but that a non-threatening patriotic party that is going to make your life better without you realizing um, that they've, you know, there's state accretion going on maybe is, is coming your way. So I think people, I always think that people misunderstand Keir because they just don't take what he says seriously. Um, so I've written about it. Um, mission driven government is a declaration of the end of neoliberalism. The, the, the third way was a moment in history when center-left progressives could find an alliance with a center-right that would work with them and you could bring them across and you could create a consensus, a bipartisan consensus, but lots of which have carried on. The evolution of the right makes it almost impossible to reach over the aisle to the right, whether in uh, the US, the Republicans, uh, whether in, in France, where the, where the traditional right have gone, in Italy, where the Christian Democrats no longer exist, um, in, well, in in Germany, where the AFD are hot on the heels of the Christian Democrats, in, in Sweden, uh, where uh, the far right are sustaining a right-wing party in power, we've got a collapse of the traditional right. I mean, look at I mean, Pedro Sanchez's victory uh, at the, the last general election is because of the inability of the right to deal with their far right, uh, with Vox, so there's a crisis on the there's a crisis on the right, and there's a change on the left. There's a there's a new moment. It's not my historical moment because my moment was the ninety seven moment. It is a moment when the centre left, and the green progressives and the liberal progressives, liberal Democrats, that's the new coalition that has to be constructed. It's there. It's there to be formed, and that is what elections are about. Election, great election wins are not about trying to win back the red wall, trying to fight the last battle. Great election victories are about the formation of a new electorate where there wasn't one before. The red wall didn't exist. It was created. It's, there's now a new electorate in formation. And, it, the, and for me, the two pillars of Starmerism are climate crisis is real. That is our, that is our single biggest and almost only fiscal bet is in the industrial strategy to decarbonize the country, which has, has within it an offer to the middle class, the working class, uh, the, the, the lower middle class, uh, the self-employed. Um, it's got something for everybody in it. And the, and, the, and, and, and the other pillar of it, which is massively, it's not this misunderstood, it's just not taken seriously, is we have ended uh, the notion that we solve any and every problem in public policy 
by extending the market further and further, deeper and deeper into social relations and public services and public service production. And for me, the moment neoliberalism in public services and the new public management ended uh, was with the tragedy in Grenfell. That is where the marketization of public services and the devolving of political responsibility and moral responsibility political leadership ends up. Kensington and Chelsea Council devolved the management of their public housing, 17,000 units, to the tenants and then ignored it. And the consequence was a set of contracts which the inquiry will find out exactly what went wrong. Something went badly wrong in believing you can contract out everything down to the, the certain level. The mission-driven government, and it goes back to your point, Laura, mission-driven government is not state accretion. The mission-driven government is, we have these five priorities. Do you agree or disagree? They look pretty right to me. They look pretty right to most people, I suspect. And the proposition is, if we have these things, how can we work together? How can we solve this? We've had, we've come in from a politics of division, a politics, in fact, where victory uh, for, for victorious political parties and in referen- the referendum victory, victory came from division. And we've also got to the end of winning politics and winning victories through division, division, division. What the missions offer is, how can you play your role? And it, in, look, it's like, you know, the great story of, of, uh, of Gandhi. Gandhi's, Gandhi said, what we're going to do? We're going to walk to the sea and make salt. Why does that matter? We can all walk. Uh, what can we do? We can get to the sand. We can we can create uh, a, a salt pan in the sand. When the tide goes out, the water will dry in the salt. Why does that matter? Because we're defying the imperial salt tax. So we're saying, fuck off to the British Empire. We're doing something together and we're creating salt. Mission, missions are mobilizing. And that's the thing which... We've got to break with the language of reform, got to break with the language of neoliberalism and the politics and the assumptions of neoliberalism, because if climate crisis is the biggest issue, which it is, it can only be dealt with multinationally, multilaterally, which is why this last week in Keir's career has been really important. Go to The Hague, to Europol, go to Montreal to be with progressive leaders, go um, uh, to visit President Macron, Global Britain is multilateral Britain and it's dealing with it. So it's, it's a paradigm shift and it's the paradigm shift is based on partnership. It's based on it's based on change being done with and through people, not to people. Um, and that for me is a huge change, which is insufficiently uh, understood. And for me, that's the big break. That's what that's what the change of this moment is going to be. Uh, and Starmerism. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly agree with what John said about um, people aren't really paying too much attention to what Keir Starr was actually saying. Um, he's, there's, and if you listen to him carefully and actually read his speeches, they're not a joy, but there is there is much more radicalism in it. And I guess we'll just have to wait like we had to wait after 97. Those, those five missions are potentially transformative. It just depends whether, and, and certainly not Blairite, they're much more ambitious, I think, than anything Tony Blair um, did. Uh, but we'll have to just see if the context allows Blair to, to live up to that. But just just to finally end, just to finally end on a very, very quick um, question um, and very quick answers. Um, Tony Blair said he wouldn't be a backseat driver 
what what should Keir Starmer do with Tony Blair um, when he's in number 10? Listen to him, take his advice, but not always follow it. Laura? Short and succinct. Um, <laughs> no, I think um, this was a great conversation. And um, John just let us know in the chat he believes in Keir, I have to say. I think we all do. And let's hope he can pull it off. <laughs> Probably most of our listeners think that too, I would imagine, yes. Indeed. Well, thank you for coming on, John. Yeah, thanks very much, John. Thanks, Laura. Um, And thanks to Joe, our our engineer. 